with me to Philippians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that when you saved us in your son, you didn't just leave us to fend for ourselves in the Christian life. You gave us a 66-book word to transform us by your Spirit. And Lord, this text is here for that very purpose. It's not just to teach us academically. It's to get into our business and transform our affections, our attitudes, and our ultimate commitments. We pray that it would do just that today. In the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, amen. Many of us grew up on the Peanuts comic strips. I remember Sunday mornings, always getting the Sunday paper, and that was the first thing I looked at. And one of my favorites finds Lucy demanding that Linus change the television channel. And then she threatens him with her fist if he doesn't. And he responds, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? And Lucy says, these five fingers. Individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together like this into a single unity, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. And Linus then responds, which channel do you want? And they... Then turned around and looked at his fingers and he said, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) Well, it's a humorous cartoon, but there's something very Pauline about it. Indeed, for the Apostle Paul, unity is fundamental to the task, the mission, the identity of Christ's church. It's essential to our witness. As Jesus makes that clear, the night before... He was crucified. He's about to be arrested. And he's praying for his people, those who would believe in him. And it's remarkable because you see what's on his heart. You see his burden that night. Of all things he could be praying for, here's what he prays. Father, I pray that they would be one, just as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. Of course, the main reason for that is that the gospel is a message of reconciliation with God. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to reconcile us to God. We are by nature alienated from God. And he came to reconcile us. And how can unbelievers be convinced that Jesus Christ reconciles us to God when we aren't reconciled to each other? Another reason unity is so crucial in the local church is that disunity has the effect of turning a church on itself. When a church has a lot of 
divisive elements in it. It has to focus on putting out fires from within. And it doesn't have the time or the energy to be salt and light in the world. And that's why, apart from an attack on the church's very authority, the Word of God, I believe the church's greatest danger is whatever attacks its unity. Whether that's from outside the church or even from within the church. And Paul is going to address that head on. He's going to address it in chapter 2. He's going to address it in chapter 4. But before he does that, he's never in a hurry to deal with behavior. He reminds them, first of all, of the certainty of grace that's on them and in them in the Philippian church. Now, why does he do this? Because Paul knows that there is a difference between spiritual unity... And this notion of uniformity. Unity is from within. It starts with a heart that's been compelled by grace. Uniformity is caused from without. Pressure from without. It's kind of like a military unit. That is unified because of this drill sergeant. It's heavy-handed pressure from without. You see it on sports teams. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean that hearts have been changed or that hearts love this person. It's uniformity. And that's why he's opening this text up the way he does, by appealing to the highest motivations for unity. It's not the Rodney King, can't we just get along idea. What we see, first of all, is Paul's ifs. Now, we lose that in the ESV. We only see the word if one time in the ESV, but the New American Standard picks it up. There's, there's four times in the original language the word if is used in verse 1. Paul's ifs, a threefold motivation for unity in the church. Notice with me in verse 1. He says, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, <clears throat> any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy. He's getting at the motivation for why they should be unified. When we see failures and sins and weaknesses in individual believers, our natural response is to criticize them, even slander them. Or we will often withdraw from them. Or maybe we'll just use a heavy-handed approach and get in their face, like the drill sergeant. Paul's response here is much deeper, much wiser, much more tender and loving, and much more effective. He knows that it's only by grace that we're able to change and develop patterns of transformed attitudes and actions. Now, this word so here in verse 1 takes us back to chapter 1, verse 27, where he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are walking firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the sake, for the faith of the gospel. 
And so Paul has continued that line of thought. He is saying, my supreme desire for you as a church is that your body life corresponds to the glory of the gospel as you live out in the world as heavenly citizens. Such a life not only convicts the world, it convinces you that you're really his. Remember that in chapter 1, verse 28. Now, the church at Philippi, as any true church had or has, had many admirable qualities. Uh, In chapter 4, Paul calls them his joy and crown. They were partners in the gospel. We saw that in chapter 1-5. They were partakers of grace. They, They were willing to give sacrificially, even though they were impoverished. You can see in 2 Corinthians 8 how impoverished they really were economically, financially. But they were giving sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. Again, your giving patterns reflect your priorities and commitments. They were even willing to be persecuted for Christ's sake. We see that in chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. But they had a problem. They had a significant problem. William Barclay insightfully observes, the one danger which threatened the Philippian church was that of disunity. There is a sense in which that is the danger of every healthy church. And this was a healthy church, relatively speaking. Note the danger of every healthy church. This isn't just for unhealthy churches. It is when people are really in earnest. In healthy churches, you have earnest believers, correct? It's when people are really in earnest, when their beliefs really matter to them, that they are apt to get up against each other. The greater their enthusiasm, the greater the danger that they may collide. Isn't that insightful? The greater the enthusiasm, the more you care, the greater danger that we will collide with one another. Which is why Paul addresses disunity in every single one of his letters, without exception. And here he addresses it by first reminding them of the blessings that they have in their God. Now I want you to note the grace of the Trinity here. In verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Now the word there, if, could be added here because it's in the original language. If any comfort from love. And I would say that's the love of the Father. And I'll address that in a moment. If any participation in the Spirit. If any affection and sympathy. And so here you see encouragement in Christ. Comfort of love from the Father. And participation in the Spirit. Now I recognize that the, the, the word Father isn't expressly used in this verse. But I want you to consider two of the three persons of the Godhead are mentioned. And there's one other place that Paul uses that phrase, participation in the Spirit, or fellowship in the Spirit. It's in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which is clearly Trinitarian. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so this is clearly, to me, a a Trinitarian reality. 
And so what you have here, Paul's point is despite our natural tendencies towards self-absorption, self-love, selfishness, God selflessly has come to us, the Father, in the Son, by the Spirit, through no merit of our own. Paul is intending to transform us from the inside out. Now let's look at this line by line. Notice, first of all, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. This is union language. You've heard me say often, when we trust in Christ, we are united to Christ. And what is true of Christ is now true of us. We have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so this is union language. And the word here, encouragement, is the word paraklesis. Paraklesis. It literally means a coming alongside to help. And so this word could conveys the idea that Christ has come alongside to help. But make no mistake, his help isn't like some multivitamin. I remember taking Mega Man for the longest. I just felt more vital with Mega Man. But the reality is Mega Man's expensive. You can get it at GNC. And I decided to get off Mega Man. I'm no less healthy getting off Mega Man. So you can take vitamins or you don't have to take vitamins that are not fundamental to your health. That's not the idea here. This help in Christ is our very life. It's grace. It's power. It's our salvation. And the gospel is clear in that phrase. Because if Christ is going to come dwell in us by his spirit, we have to be made fit for him to dwell. Christ has made us fit by his atoning work on the cross. Where he took the judgment we deserved and was raised for our justification. Paul says if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now remember the context. The end of chapter 1. He's referring to the suffering that they are experiencing. He has been granted to you not only to believe in his name, but to suffer for his sake. And so as they are suffering for Christ's sake, there is help from Christ. There is encouragement from Christ. Whatever they, whatever we need from God, provision, peace, comfort, forgiveness of sins, grace to overcome our indwelling sin, guidance, forgiveness... Any form of assistance, we have a paraclesis. That's what Paul is telling them. This paraclesis has come. He's given his life away. And he's preparing us that we might give our lives away as well. Notice what he says as well here. He says, if any comfort from love. Now, the word comfort here means solace for the troubled heart. How many troubled hearts are here today? Every hand could be raised. Why? We live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world and we still have indwelling sin. And so you add those two realities to the equation, it's going to lead to troubled hearts. And here we have the comfort of love from the Father, which is supremely expressed in the Son, correct? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Or consider Romans 8.32 where he says, He, 
who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how much more will he in Christ freely give us all things? What this is telling us is that God the Father is completely invested in us. He paid an infinite price in his son that we might have this comfort of love. He is completely invested. He is lovingly invested. And then Paul adds, if there's any participation in the spirit. And that's the word koinonia. You could translate that partnership. We saw that in chapter 1 verse 5 where it was first used. Where Paul says they were partners in the gospel. It can, it can be used uh, in this way as well. Participants in the spirit. It was used of business part, uh, partners involved in the same venture. So what Paul is saying here is that when Christ comes by his spirit, he comes to partner with us. To not only transform us into the image of Christ, to salvage what's been broken by sin. But to reorient us back to Christ, back to God in Christ. And to play a role in what God is doing in his son to make all things new. Now the last two words here in verse 1 stress the overflow of these benefits. The benefits being the encouragement of Christ, the comfort of love from the Father, participation in the Spirit. Notice he says if there is any affection. This is intense inner yearning. This is the affection that we first experience from the Father in the Son by the Spirit. It's a word that Paul used in chapter 1 verse 8 when he says, I yearn for you with the very affections of Christ. We saw that that is Christ being lived through the Apostle Paul by the Spirit. And so Paul and every believer has experienced this affection from the triune God. And one of the evidences that we've experienced it, we become conduits of that affection. Remember, he's setting up this mandate to unity. And alongside that affection is God's sympathy. Note that word. You can translate that word mercies. For instance, this very word sympathy is used in Romans 12 verse 1. Where Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Note what he's saying there. You've experienced mercy. Romans gives us 11 chapters of mercy. Now that you've experienced this mercy, this sympathy from the triune God, be a conduit of this mercy. It's the same word here. If you've received this sympathy... In other words, God never calls us to give what he hasn't already given us. And he never calls us to do what he hasn't already done. That's what he is setting up as he begins to connect the dots between what we've received and what is now our responsibility. And that brings us to the second point. We saw the, the motivation, the ifs. Paul now gives us the thens, a threefold mandate for unity in the church. Notice in verse 2. 
complete my joy. It's a remarkable phrase, isn't it? You say, I thought the joy is the the fruit of the Spirit. God God the Spirit uses means. All right? You, You can't have joy in isolation. He uses human agency. He uses the church as a means of producing the fruit. All right? He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord of one mind. What a model and example the Apostle Paul is for us. Let me ask you a question. If you, if you were in chains under false charges, and as we saw, there was never a moment in his life for two years that he was further than 18 inches from an imperial soldier. If you were in chains with no privacy, under false charges, complete false charges, and your future is anything but guaranteed, where would you look for your joy? I mean, this, that phrase poses a challenge for all of us. Complete my joy. Do we, are our hearts so invested in one another? All right? In the local church, in our brothers and sisters, that we could say that our joy finds its completion in the spiritual growth, maturity, and unity of our brothers and sisters. It's a very haunting question. One 16th century commentator says this. How little anxiety Paul had as to himself. Provided only it went well with the church. Before his view were tortures. Near at hand was the executioner. Yet all these things do not prevent his experiencing unmingled joy. Provided he sees that the churches are in good condition. Just a remarkable thought. And I want to get there. Here's how we study our Bibles. We read this and we recognize that's not me. But God has given me an example in the Apostle Paul. So I want to get to the place where I can say, Fisherville, you complete my joy by your growth and your maturity, by your unity. I want to get there. I want you to get there. Remember, Paul is giving us the foundation, the theological foundation for true unity, not uniformity. Of course, Paul could have this perspective only because the truth of verse 1 had become his heart's song. Encouragement in Christ, comfort of love from the Father, participation, fellowship, partners in the Spirit. And in verses 2 to 4, Paul says, If these truths are the heart's song of the believer, then three benefits will flow out of that. I'll give you the three benefits up front. They correspond to the verses. Verse 2, unity. Verse 3, humility. And verse 4, 
selflessness. If the truths of verse 1 are our hearts sown, then the three benefits that will flow out of that are unity, humility, and selflessness. The first is unity. Notice again in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Now, note at the beginning and end of this verse, being of the same mind and of one mind. He's used that in chapter 1, verse 27, where he talks about uh, standing firm in one spirit with one mind. So this is very important to Paul. He uses this verb, in fact, 10 times in Philippians alone. He's going to use it again in verse 5, in fact, where he says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of man. So we're not left to guess what he means by this one mind. He's not saying you have to agree on everything. It's impossible. Parents can't agree with children. Children can't agree with parents. Husbands and wives don't agree on everything. Certainly in a church... That's hopefully as diverse as the new heavens and earth will be. You're not going to agree on everything. But here's the one thing. If we can agree on this, then everything else will fall into place. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so he's talking about this gospel-oriented mind that informs how we relate to one another. We'll look more at that next week. Now, between these two thinking-oriented expressions, notice he inserts two terms that inform what we're talking about. Having the same love. He didn't say loving the same things. He said having the same love. It's a source of love where you become a conduit of it. Uh, You're going to love different things. You're going to have different sports teams. You're going to have different hobbies. All of us will have different things we love. But this is having the same love, the same source of love. And he says, and being in full accord. And don't lose sight of the Trinitarian nature of what he's saying. Just like the Godhead. Verse 1. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit is on the same page. So when Jesus comes as our encouragement... The Father comes as our comfort of love. The Spirit comes as our partner, our fellowship, our partaker. They are coming. There's an inseparable operation in the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's never a disruption in the Godhead. And he's saying that love, it's the same love that we experience from Father, Son, and Spirit, which if we have experienced collectively, there will be one accord. There will be unity. This is God's love communicated in his son by his spirit. And it's that love and only that love that can produce. And this brings us to the second word. We've seen unity. Humility. Gospel informed. Gospel transforming humility. Notice in verse 3. Do nothing 
from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so the key to unity is humility. Do you know what the true obstacle to unity is? Well, we just can't get along. No, that's not the real obstacle. It's not legitimate differences of opinion that is the obstacle to true unity. Now, this this is important not just for churches. This is important for marriages. Every marriage, even parents with children, children with parents, even for our youth in our youth ministry. This is a profound thought that Paul is giving us. The real obstacle is not that we don't have a lot in common. That's the glory of the church. We may not have a lot in common except Christ and he's enough. The real obstacle, Paul says, is selfish ambition and conceit. In other words, disunity is not the problem. It's the symptom. He says the real problem is selfish ambition and conceit. Now, he used this word selfish ambition already in chapter 1, verse 17, where he's referring to these guys who preach the gospel, but out of selfish ambition. So you can do the right thing for the wrong motive. And it will have a devastating effect on unity. And here he's using that term to diagnose the problem. This is Dr. Paul. We have gone to him to diagnose the real issues of the heart. And he's saying, here's the problem. Selfish ambition. Now, what is selfish ambition? It is ambition produced by inordinate self-love. That's selfish ambition. It is ambition produced by King Me, who sits enthroned with his crown. And when I sit enthroned with my crown, every ambition that flows out of that reign and rule is selfish. And then he connects that word with conceit. Now, I don't like that translation because it's easy to think, well, conceit just means you're arrogant. And I realize that there's... Arrogance is not necessarily epidemic in churches, but conceit is. This is a compound word, kinodoxia. I give it to you because I believe the compound word helps inform what this means. The prefix is an adjective, kinos, kinos. It, it translates empty or vain. The suffix is doxa, the noun for glory. And hence the King James Version's rendering, vainglory. Vainglory. We were hardwired for glory. We were created as the image of God. And as the image of God, we reflect the glory of the triune God. We reflect that glory... Ontologically, that is in our person, in our constitution. But we also reflect that glory in our function. 
When Adam went rogue as our representative, this notion of living for the glory of the triune God got distorted. We still live for glory, but not naturally the triune God's glory. Which means what motivates us in our default natural condition is vainglory. Now I want you to think about something. Why do all the planets, why do the planets never collide with one another in the solar system? You'd think after this much time, the planets would have collided. It's because the planets all agree on the center. The sun, right? But when you have a group of people who disagree on the center, when you have people who have various and diverse motivating factors, what are you going to have? Boom. When everybody is motivated by vainglory, I've got my motivations, you've got your motivations. The only way to true unity is to agree on the center. Is to be motivated by the same reality. That is the glory of God. And so it's selfish ambition. And this vainglory. That's behind internal division. Whether it's the church or your marriage. Your husband is not your problem. Your wife is not your problem. God is using your husband. God is using your wife to expose selfish ambition and vainglory. And if both parties are in a church, all parties can understand that. What happens? Unity. Unity. So what must replace selfish ambition... And vainglory, conceit. The gospel person in humility counts others more significant than themselves. That is just a remark. That is so unnatural to me. And I want to go, but Paul! You know, at Cave Hill Seminary, Cemetery, <laughs> faux pas. Sometimes they, they're hard to distinguish. Um, at Cave Hill Cemetery, there's this towering tombstone of John Broadus. Maybe you don't know who John Broadus is. He's one of the founders of Southern Seminary. He wrote one of the definitive works on expository preaching, one of the real heroes of the faith and in Southern Baptist life. But you have this towering uh, tombstone, not because he was so arrogant, but his family wanted to honor him, and they built that tombstone for him. But next to his tombstone is this kind of a flat, um, non-special, obscure uh, grave. It's a flat grave marker, and in that grave is a man named A.T. Robertson. A.T. Robertson was a world-renowned New Testament Greek scholar. Wrote a definitive 
work, 1,400 pages on Greek grammar. Barry reads it in his quiet time. As great as John Broadus was as a scholar, A.T. Robertson made Broadus look elementary. And yet, his grave right next to his is just a flat, obscure marker. A.T. Robertson was John Broadus's son-in-law. And he wanted to be buried in the shadow of Broadus. That's a great picture of verse 3 here. The word humility is literally a low mindset. Now, that does not mean inferiority complex. Having an inferiority complex is as prideful as being arrogant. You're the image of God. And so to say you have an inferiority complex is to dispel something very true and noble about you. Rather, it's a willingness to forget oneself and regard others with concern and respect. The pagan authors of Paul's day hated the notion of humility. They thought it conveyed weakness and servility and and subjection. It was a bad word. So we need to understand that. What Paul is saying here was so countercultural in that day. Paul commends humility as the mark of the heavenly citizen. In fact, he's going to use that very word in verse 8 for the Messiah. We'll see that next week. Who humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, in a world of self-promotion, and if you don't agree with that, get on Twitter. Even in the evangelical world, it's a world of self-promotion. We call it maximizing our platform. Paul calls it selfish ambition and conceit. But in a world, what does humility look like? Well, the best exposition or you might say, explanation of this notion. I came across in a book by Paul Miller. Um, a book called The Loving Life. And I commend that book. I commend another book on prayer, the, the, the Praying Life by Paul Miller. Wonderful books. But in The Loving Life, he is so helpful here. First of all, he says that humility is physical. It involves a physical placement that is in some way lower countercultural, isn't it? Secondly, you can see humility. It's not vague. We see it in gratitude, kindness, a refusal to slander, contentment in one's circumstances. Third, it can feel like you're disappearing. When you're humble, People don't always notice you. I mean, think about sports. Which are the, who are the athletes who get noticed? Who gets the camera time? The guys doing all the nonsense after they did what they're supposed to do. 
The athletes that just go back to the sidelines because they've been there before, they don't get noticed. Four, many sins such as anger, jealousy, and quarreling are rooted in our unwillingness to take the low place. That works in marriage too, doesn't it? You've been brought off your perch and you're unwilling to be brought off your perch without a fight. Fifth, I love this. Once you get over the shock, the low place is a place of deep soul rest. What does he mean by that? The reason it's deep soul rest is I no longer have to strive to make my mark. I no longer have to strive to make a name for myself. I've gone low. Sixth, you discover people in the low place. It's like entering, he says, a darkened room that has many friends in it. At first you think you're alone, but as your eyes begin to adjust... You begin to see friends everywhere. Maybe even people that you didn't notice when you were up higher. And then seventh, most importantly, the great joy of the low place is that it's where God dwells. Isaiah 57 verse 15, the one who is high and lifted up dwells with the contrite and lowly of spirit. And so when we make the choice by grace to go to the low place, you against me becomes God with me. Such a profound thought. But this mindset, it's so unnatural to our self-preserving and self-promoting instincts. And that's why verse 1 grounds all of this. When when's God's love and grace in Jesus Christ comes to us by the fellowship of the Spirit, it begins to develop into our deepest desires. That's how you know you've experienced it. That's how you know you've beheld it. It begins to develop into your deepest desires. Indeed, this gospel-induced humility produces the third word. We saw unity in verse 2. We saw humility, verse 3. And verse 4, selflessness. Notice in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, the reason this is so important is because everyone who is united to Christ, is united to everyone who is united to Christ. So there's a notion, I I, I can live the Christian life with my cup of coffee and my Bible at home. You are signaling you may not be in Christ. Because everyone who is united to Christ is united to everyone who is united to Christ. Which means I have a responsibility For you. And you have responsibility to me. But here's the question as we close. How can our hearts. That are so naturally selfish. And turned. 
in on themselves be turned inside out like this. It's not a matter of the will. The only remedy, the only remedy, is to have our hearts overwhelmed by the one of whom verse 4 describes perfectly. Only that kind of selfless love, incarnational love, can squeeze out self-love. It's only by beholding and experiencing this kind of incarnational love that has the power to change us all. From self-loving, self-absorbed, conceited, divisive people to those who model incarnational love like the Savior. That's the only hope for Christian growth. It's the only hope for unity. And it's the only hope for our witness and mission in the world. May God do that work here at Fisherville. Let's pray. Father, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there's any comfort of love in you, the Father, and there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, and there is. We pray that we would have this same mind in us, the people of God. I pray that for our marriages. I pray for every marriage present today that the mind of Christ would come to bear. And that that mind would so melt prideful and selfish and conceited hearts that restoration and renewal would be the fruit of these marriages. But beginning with repentance. And I pray, Lord, if there's any division here at Fisherville, you would do the same. Yes, for our benefit, but for your name's sake, for your son's name's sake, and for the role, the calling, the mission of your bride, the church, that has been called to signal to a lost and dying world that, yes, Christ has emerged victorious over alienation, as evidenced by our horizontal reconciliation. May you do that work among us today. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.